Hello, hello, welcome to this. This is the newest episode of Too Long Don't Listen. I haven't done one of these for a while. Uh, my name is Sean Peterbudge and I am here to yammer on and wax about Top Gun Maverick, which I've seen tonight. I wasn't necessarily planning on doing a review of this movie, but despite very much looking forward to it, but having seen it and loved it, um, I thought it would be fun to kind of get the cobwebs out. Going to start doing some Obi-Wan episodes in the next week or two, so just get used to this particular format of podcasting again and talk about something um, or talking about something that you've enjoyed or, or loved is always uh, a lot of fun. So I thought on the drive home, we'll try to turn this around and, and see what we can make of it. So thank you very much for listening. If you are interested in my thoughts on this movie, if you are interested in seeing the movie, or if you have seen the movie, uh, definitely get in touch. Let me know. Um because without bearing the lead, it is absolutely worth seeing. It is one of the better films I've seen in recent times uh, and one of the better film-going experiences I've had in recent times. Um, we will get into spoilers, so there's fair warning for you there. We will get into spoilers as the episode progresses and as I unpack everything. Um, but as will become abundantly clear, the longer I talk, love the movie um, and could not recommend it more highly. Um uh, first things first, we'll do a little bit of an overview because um, it's time to fire up your Harold Faltermeyer and buckle in for some classic Bruckheimer and Simpson glossy 80s action. Get yourself to Fighter Town USA because 37 years removed from first going ballistic, buzzing the tower and playing with the boys. Top Gun is back. Uh, it was actually a film delayed for eons as a result of the pandemic. I think it was in the can for almost two years. It was completed, locked and ready to go, but pushed back and back and back. One of the, the earliest and biggest casualties. It just couldn't quite find its spot in the slate. Um, but like I said, the wait was absolutely worth it. Uh, Tom Cruise returns to his first truly star-making role a little bit older, but perhaps not all that much wiser, but certainly with a point to prove. That point is, of course, he is without doubt the last true movie star standing in Hollywood. And come the end credits, that is in absolutely no doubt whatsoever. This movie is a love letter to a bygone era of filmmaking, souped up by the methods available to a team who clearly love the story they're telling and the world that they're telling it in. It is directed by Joseph Kaczynski, himself a talented artist who previously directed... Um, another legacy sequel, uh, Tron Legacy, um, you know, just got a bit of form in following a cult classic movie that was somewhat limited by the technical ceilings of its day, uh, but revisiting it with you know, all the bells and whistles of the 21st century at his disposal. Uh, in Top Gun Maverick, we meet or are reacquainted with a perfectly content but somewhat ambition-stymied Maverick, still chasing the rush of a game that he's ageing out of. That's not because he can't cut it, but because the world he runs in has simply moved on. He's recruited back to Miramar and the Top Gun project to prepare a new crop of the best of the best for a dangerous and daring mission. Mav is then drawn into a world in which he's required to confront the relationships and themes that he'd put off reconciling with for perhaps a little bit too long. And finally, the film culminates with a pulsating third act in the greatest tradition of the era that spawned its predecessors, chiefly with our heroes being heroic, which is always great. Uh, as for a top-line impression, I kind of mentioned off the top there that it is sort of dangerous to tie yourself to a first impression, um, but I think this is a modern classic. This is exactly what the cinema experience is all about. This isn't a film to wait for on streaming. It's not a film to download a pirated copy. This is a film to get off the couch 
and go and find the biggest, loudest screen that you can. I know petrol costs about $15,000 a litre at the moment, but if you have to drive a little bit further, it is well worth it. You will appreciate it. I think you will enjoy the movie greatly. In terms of the first movie or its predecessor, it's sort of fun to kind of revisit it because the first movie is just that. It's a fun film. It's well made. You know, and Tony Scott, who himself was a bit of a maverick um, when it comes to, to storytelling, almost regarded it as kind of like a dressed-up music video, and that's fine. Because ultimately, easy to follow, stakes are clear, it's got some nice drama and some emotional beats, but at the end of it all, it's just crowd-pleasing fun. But more than that, this is a better movie. Top Gun Maverick is a better movie. Just let you let you marinate in that for a moment. I'm not saying that the first Top Gun is some absolute masterpiece, but in terms of what it is, it's pretty damn good. But in terms of what this new film is, or aspires to be, and ends up being, it's brilliant. It is better. It is as good an experience I've had watching a movie at the cinema for such a long time. I'll probably say that. I can't even remember if I've already said that, but I'll probably say that a number of times as we go on. Um, I found myself sitting there watching it, and even in the lead-up to it, I was kind of considering considering you know Tom Cruise returning to this role and... And that, that note I had earlier about him being kind of the last true movie star. And it was only crystallised as I was driving home and again thinking about it. He, his career was born at the end of that great era of star-driven storytelling. You know, name above the title type stuff. And that, that does still happen. There are still actors, you know, whether it be those Marvel movies or, or something sort of similar, who are tied or tethered to a particular performance or character and the success of that film or that property relies on them reprising the character like that. That is absolutely the case. But Tom Cruise kind of does mix his stuff around. He does do different types of movies. He does do franchise movies, clearly. But he is a treasure because his name being above the title means as much in 2022 as it did in 1986. And of course, no filmography is flawless. Um, but when you look at what his career has become... He has done a masterful job of recognising where he needs to go and who he needs to pair himself with, uh, recognising that he needs to pair himself with you know, like-minded, passionate storytellers. And the main reason for that, I suppose, is because in the great tradition of Hollywood, his name is a brand. And brands have reputations. And at the moment, he's had a couple of little misfires. You know, American Made wasn't terrific and The Mummy was terrible. But at the moment... The name Tom Cruise promises quality and spectacle, the likes of which few of his contemporaries can dream of, let alone match. You know, I mentioned pairing himself with others. Uh, this film sees him reconnect with a Joseph Kaczynski. They work together on, uh, on Oblivion. Um, and Chris McQuarrie is probably the more pertinent collaborator of late. Uh, he is a writer-director who, alongside Cruise, has transformed the Mission Impossible series into arguably the gold standard in franchise filmmaking. It has surpassed James Bond. It left that rebooted kind of Bourne universe in dust. And then incidentally, the, way I mean, the reason I mention that is because having worked together a number of times, we'll go through a few other ones that they've collaborated on, uh, Macquarie wrote Maverick. So in Macquarie, Cruz has clearly found someone who he trusts with his voice and he trusts with his brand, um, which is a great endorsement for, for Macquarie. 
uh, whose previous credits include, uh, he was the writer of The Usual Suspects. Um, he wrote Valkyrie, which was the pair's first uh, team-up. Uh, both of those films were incidentally directed by Brian Singer. Um, he also adapted the screenplay for and directed Jack Reacher, the first one, which was really was a really good movie, before going on to write uh, The Excellent Edge of Tomorrow, which was, of course, starring Tom Cruise, directed by Doug Liman. And then, in terms of this collaboration more broadly, uh, he has wrote, uh, written and directed the last two Mission Impossible films and will do the same for the next two. Um, the first trailer for Dead Reckoning Part 1 came out yesterday, I believe, Tuesday, and looked, looked great. Because they're all great. They're all excellent. It's sort of hard to not be blasé because you're like, yeah, it looks brilliant because they're all brilliant. Like, <laughs> that's that's what these guys do at the moment. They just make really, really good sort of like uh, James Bondy globe-trotting kind of action-y movies. It's, it's it just... It's doing a good job of it. Um, and then on Kaczynski, actually, he, he also, apart from, you know, Oblivion and Tron Legacy... Um, very talented artist. He, he did the the really excellent Gears of War. Just drew a blank on the name. The Gears of War uh, short film kind of trailer, sort of weird sort of thing um, to Mad World, which was like a, a like a really groundbreaking sort of iconic piece of um, animation and whatnot in the mid two thousands. Would have been two thousand five or six for that game on the Xbox. Um, we'll get into the chicken salads now. Um, you know, things that we've liked or I liked about the movie. Uh, as I said earlier, we are in spoilers, so I may, when broaching different aspects of the film, I will potentially go into spoilers, so just bear that in mind as we go on. I think what the film does really, really well, um, and this is the first note I've got you know, under these chicken salad headings, is capture the right tone and characterization. You know, I think a tricky part of these legacy sequels is whether or not the film can capture or recapture a particular character's psyche. And a lot of these belated sequels fall into the trap of sort of breaking the character or souring them off-screen in the time between films, which in turn makes them unrecognisable or unrelatable. And the reason they do this is because they think that is that adds intrigue or interest, is that the character's not how you left them. And the most high-profile example of that recently is probably someone like a Luke Skywalker, although they also did it over the course of Toy Story 4 with um, with Woody, which was disappointing. But it, it feels as though the writers think that the only course of action available to them is to have the character be a shell of themselves or at their lowest ebb. You know, they've failed sort of thing. They're a broken you know, individual and they need a new generation to lift them up and restore them to their former glory or something approximating that. I hate that. I hate that so much. I think it's lazy. I think it's, I think it's indicative, or it's become a bit of a trend of like sort of smart-ass writers taking over a character they think they understand, but have sort of no respect for. They think they know best, and they think that stripping them right back and stripping them back to this broken state is in any way interesting or rewarding for the audience. You know, the, the Luke Skywalker stuff. Mark Hamill spoke about it at length about, you know, he's Jake Skywalker, he's not my Luke Skywalker, and to kind of to kind of have those films built around him being what he'd become, it's not that it's necessarily even a bad or uninteresting idea, but the way they executed it had absolutely no respect for the character's arc. 
it had no respect or consistency with what the character had been through or come to mean to the audience and to the audience's perception of everything that he'd gone through to get to that point, then to catch up with him 30 years later and have him be a stranger was just terrible. Just just awful, awful filmmaking. And so it's really, it's really cool that what these guys have done with a guy like Maverick is they kind of haven't made him a lovable loser, which would have been the easiest thing to do. Oh, he's gone nowhere with his career. That's probably because he didn't want to go down that path. You know, Maverick is, is kind of, he's portrayed as that lovable rogue still. He's a bit of a Peter Pan. You know, he's still a risk taker and a rule breaker. And that is why he's remained you know, in the hierarchy where he has for so long. Um, although that is sometimes with the help of others, which we'll touch on a little bit later. But importantly, he's still the same person. You know, he's, he's flawed and he's fallible, but he's a good guy. He's a good man. He hasn't become a nasty cynic because of what he thinks the world owes him or what he thinks he was denied or what he thinks he should have been. No, he's not a nasty cynic like a lot of these reboots or legacy sequels turn these characters into, which I think is the first mistake they make. You got to a particular point and you went through, whether it be one film, two films or three films, you got to a particular point in your character arc to reset that arc due to incidents we've seen off screen is crap. So, I suppose what they do as well, sometimes which is frustrating, is they actually kind of remove the lead character from the plot. He retains, um, in Maverick I should say, he retains a sense of utility to everything that happens. He isn't sidelined. You know, his agency or his legacy isn't handled uh, handed to someone else for them to fulfil what the audience wish for the character or wish to see from the character, which is really good. So in terms of capturing the right tone and capturing the right character, we are given or we are shown a maverick at a later stage of his life who is still the same guy. He's still understandably Pete Mitchell. He's still the character we know and the character that sort of won our hearts in the first one, no matter how long ago it was. He's not exactly the same character. He has some growth, which is good. But he's not a stranger. That's the worst thing that a lot of these films do. Is they make the lead character, the protagonist, the legacy character, they make them a stranger. You know, even Han Solo went back to being a, a loser. And you were like, "That's you've really just thrown out a great character arc for, I don't, because you preferred him as that character, but the whole point of it was that he, he, he evolved and grew beyond that. Ugh, whatever, we don't want to talk about that. The other cool thing, which is probably a little talking point, but it's a bit of fun as well, he has an age-appropriate love interest. So uh, Jennifer Connelly plays um, Penny Benjamin, who is a name or a character that was mentioned in the very first one as being the Admiral's daughter who Maverick had had a bit of a fling with. And what I kind of like about her inclusion or insertion into the plot is that, well, she'd been not too dissimilar to Maverick in a lot of ways. You know, Maverick's old man was a fighter pilot. He probably would have been a bit of an army brat going from base to base and living in these sort of close-knit, tight-knit communities, um, and Penny would have been no different, you know, with her father. So growing up in these circles, on these bases, of course she'd be drawn back to them, and she'd be drawn to someone like Maverick, and vice versa, of course they would be. Of course they'd have things in common and shared or lived experiences together. So I actually don't know if she's referred to by as Benjamin in the film, um, but she is Penny Benjamin, which is a cool little Easter egg, and one that I think plays out in a kind of subtle and earned 
way, which I did like. Um, the other chicken salad, I've got quite a few listed here, but um, action, you know, the flight sequences are brilliant, clearly, we all see in the trailers, but more than that, they're actually realised in such a way that it's, it's excellent, they're nerve-wracking, they're exhilarating uh, experiences to witness and to, and to kind of see play out, even though most of the time you sort of know how they're going to end. Yeah, you know, the film's like, you know how they're going to end. Like, they're not going to surprise a little bit more on that idea later on, but you kind of know what you're going to get, but watching them play out is still a really, really rewarding experience. Now, I mentioned we're in spoilers. I'm going to go into a sequence in some greater depth here. There's one sequence in particular, and this is a film I'm going to mention a little bit in the next couple of chicken salads. Ford v. Ferrari has a brilliant sequence called, which is like the perfect lap, where... Um, Christian Bale's Ken Miles is kind of, they're going through this idea of putting together the perfect lap and massaging the car and understanding the machine and, and being at one with the machine. When Maverick does this training run, he basically does it. So this exercise, he's been putting the uh, the Top Gun, I was going to call them cadets. They're not cadets, are they? They're like members or whatever. But the training exercise he's been putting them through and they've been coming up short in, he does it. And not as, a, not as an ego trip, but not as because the idea was he was building them up to get to this point and the training exercises are taken away from him. So he kind of, one last big roll of the dice, he basically goes, I'll, sh- I'll show you it can be done. There's a lot of doubt in the room that it can't be done. You can't do it. I'll show you it can be done. And therefore, it's a bit four-minute Miley in a way, isn't it? You know, Winning Time had that cool sequence about no one thought you could do the four-minute mile, but as soon as it was done, the next guy did it in 40 days. It's this idea that everyone thinks something's impossible until you see it done. Um, so it's that kind of idea at play. But the way they build to this particular scene and his motivations for doing it and his character growth in getting the job done, all the payoffs are absolutely brilliant. And it's something that I speak about um, at great length in all these other ones, uh, little reviews that I've done. It's a classic case of show, not tell. You know, and that's something that I bleed on about endlessly. Show us why Mav's got this reputation. Show the characters, show the, the young, kind of the kids, relatively speaking, show them why he's got this reputation. They're all got egos, they're all a bit cocky, they're all looking at this old fossil, this dinosaur, and kind of going, oh yeah, I've heard about him, and you know, how, how good really was he? And when he does this training run, oh, he was, that's how good he was. That's why he has this reputation. That's why a certain character keeps going into bat for him and getting him involved in these these exercises. It is perfect. It is absolutely fantastic. And I like the perfect lap sequence. It's one of my favourite little moments or little sort of three or four minute blocks um, in, in cinema that I can call, recall recently. And, and just on the show, don't tell, like, we always talk about Star Wars a lot, but so they established, you know, this idea that you know, Anakin was a great pilot and episode one shows him doing the pod race Episode 2 shows him doing the, the car chase through Coruscant. You're like, I, I get what you're I get what you're telling me. Of course, like he's talented, like of course, because he's a great pilot. Like that's why he's I get it. Just show him in a starfighter, dog fighting, taking out enemies. They did a little bit of it in episode three at the start. Just show us. They did it in episode seven with Poe Dammer, and they did a great sequence. That just shows you. We've told you he's the best starfighter in the in the the resistance. I think. Um, show us. Show him being that. And they do, and you go perfect. I've seen it. He is great. That's all you need to do. Show, don't 
tell. Um, the emotion of the film was another big tick for me. You know, the character that I referred to earlier was um, Iceman. Uh, Val Kilmer has a really lovely sort of little cameo uh, where he comes back into the movie. And, and for those of you that are familiar with um, Val, Val's recent sort of health struggles, he is, he is battling somewhat uh, of late. He, I think it's he had like throat cancer or something, which was terrible. Um, and he's lost his speech and um, he's really struggling. But he has a, has a really cool sort of short cameo in the film in which they work that into the plot and and just the emotion of the way the film sort of explains that they're mates you know and, and because of that because of what they've been through together because of their shared experience Iceman looks out for him he protects him he goes into bat for Mav you know he puts his reputation on the line for him he makes sure that he comes back and gets involved because he sees the value in what Maverick provides to the Navy, that he's not part of the established order, that he's not part of the cookie-cutter production line, you know, way of thinking. And he recognises that there's value in that. And he recognises that, as I said, the utility that he could serve for the next gen, for whoever else it might be, is massive. But more than that, like I said, they're great mates. And you can see it, that they're lifelong friends. You know, they have a really lovely, you know, emotional exchange where that is made abundantly clear where Maverick goes to visit him and and uh, it's just played out beautifully. It's really, really well done and it's arguably more emotional or better than it has any right to reasonably be, but it st- uh, speaks to the overall strength of the movie. Um, the other emotional sort of relationship at the heart of the film is that, or you know, the, the core of the movie is that of Mav and Harusta, who's played by Miles Teller, and he is, of course, the son of Goose, who we glimpsed in the first movie as a very young boy. Um, there's a friction between them because they're both dealing with sort of a guilt and resentment uh, regarding, obviously, Goose's death. And when it eventually comes to a head, and their their partnership is integral in the last act, but when it eventually comes to a head, they kind of have the reprise of the you-can-be-my-wingman moment. And again, like the Iceman exchanges, it's genuinely touching. And it takes what was a cheesy moment, but fun, and, and turns it into something really touching and really beautiful. And then on, on the sort of rooster situation, I think Miles Teller does a good job of being at once very much like his dad. And cosmetically, there's a huge... He's got the moustache and the glasses and he wears the floral shirts and the like. But he's also very, very different. He's, he, he's, a, you know, he's the pilot, so his, his dad was the Rio. Um... So there are some similarities, there are some differences, and there's a really cool kind of you know through line in the film where it's explained that um, Meg Ryan's character, I've forgotten her name, his rooster's mum, Goose's wife, um, had passed away, and one of the last sort of conversations she and Maverick had was don't let don't let um, just forgotten Rooster's first name. I keep calling him Rooster, which is a bit silly, but d- d- basically don't let him become a pilot. So the friction between Maverick and Rooster is that Mav effectively put the kibosh on or put the brakes on his career in the Navy by removing his application to to join um, to join the fighter pilot program, which I think he says stalled his career by four years or something. It took four years off his career. And the reason he did it was because the wife of his friend had asked him, you know, to protect her son um, and to not let him you know, do the same thing that his dad did and potentially die and all that. And there's this really lovely moment where Maverick's explaining this and 
he's asked sort of, well, you know, why did you do it? And he, he basically says that he didn't want his mother, uh, he didn't want him to resent his mother like he does me. So his mother was going to die and he didn't want her, you know, to, or his memory of her to be sullied by something he could or the role he could play in that relationship was to take that bullet. And again, show, don't tell. You're showing us that he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. You might not necessarily agree with him, you know, standing in his way, but you understand why he would do that and why he feels bad about it and why, you know, he felt compelled to do it and why Rooster cares, why he would be put out by it. So again, really, really strong emotional story, uh, storytelling. Uh, another element that I really appreciated in the film was the idea of keeping it simple and, you know, I refer back to Ford v Ferrari in that sense. I wonder how much of an influence that film was on this film in that Ford v Ferrari was a movie that really definitely balanced the layperson's interest in and understanding of the rules of the story. So that film established the stakes as the car braking. You can't win the Le Mans 24 hour if you don't finish. If your car breaks, you won't finish. How do we get the car to the finish line? We have to be fast we have to be reliable. And the number they established for the audience to very, very clearly follow was that the car running at above 7,000 RPM would lead to it breaking. So the beauty of this film is it very, very clearly establishes... I should say, actually, there's a great scene where Frank Miles is driving the car and they're under a lot of pressure. Is it a Daytona or Sebring or something? And they're under a bit of pressure. They're following the factory Ford team. And Carol Shelby tells him to go above 7,000. We've got to roll the dice, go above 7,000. And the beauty of that sequence is the audience understands the danger. We've been told don't run the car above 7,000 because if you do that, it'll break. Take the risk. They They take the risk. The risk pays off. And again, show, don't tell. It shows us the development of the car has skipped that milestone. Once upon a time, it would break. Now it doesn't. So that's a key kind of pillar in it getting to the next phase of competing with, in this case, the Ferraris. Um, and then when you go, when he pushes his car, when he, you know, in the uh, in that perfect lap scene, when he pushes his car and you see the Ferrari break, it's a brilliant moment. It's, it's been set up and it's been paid off. The audience understands completely what the filmmakers are getting at and, and how the story has got to that point. It's really, really well done. So in keeping... It's simple. Top Gun Maverick pretty much does the same thing. Um, it establishes that the mission is very clearly as thus. Maverick is brought in. Um, he's given three weeks to prepare a team of fighter pilots for a bombing run on a uranium plant. Uh, the plant is housed in a valley, which requires them to basically go under radar, um, avoid a nearby, you know, um, alerting a nearby airstrip, which would scramble their own superior jets and avoiding the surface-to-air missiles. So they go through this valley, they have to fly at under 100 feet to stay under radar, to stay under detection for the um, the anti-aircraft missiles. And they have to do it in two and a half minutes, so not to alert the aircraft to be able to get out, you know, without potentially getting into a dogfight with superior uh, jets. So it's all very clear. Could not be any clearer. And I mentioned that brilliant sequence where Mav's doing the training run, and he basically, I think he says... They've been they've been practicing their maneuvers on like a on a um uh, not not in a valley as such like not in this, but in, with you know with the hard decks and with um like in a simulation kind of 
they're flying the flying the jets for real, but they're conducting it, you know, within the confines of, of a virtual kind of framework, if that makes any sense, as they're doing the training runs. So Mav gets in the jet and does the run. And he does it in 215, and he does it at an altitude of 100 feet, and he's perfect. The idea is showing them that it can be done. And as I said, that's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant sequence, and one that, having established the challenge and the obstacle and the danger of what they're trying to achieve and showing them fail and not getting anywhere near it, to then show a character, show them that it can be done, it hits a number of beats just right on the head. It's it's really, really, really canny, really clever, uh, really um, sort of concise storytelling slash filmmaking um, and so important. The sort of technical elements are another another part of the film that are an absolute standout. I, you know, I mentioned you know Ford v Ferrari there from a storytelling point of view. That's another film that is expertly realised in a technical sense. It puts you front and centre in the machine. Sound design is brilliant. All the camera work and and you know, realising the race sequences are fantastic. Um, sea Biscuits, another film that does that so brilliantly in terms of putting you on the track, on the horses, in the thick of things, surrounding you by um, brilliant sound, surrounding you by you know a brilliant sound mix um, that, that seeks to give you an experience that you wouldn't have otherwise had. This particular film, I think, or I wonder how much of those wonderful dogfighting sequences from Dunkirk, this film... Know, what inspiration it took from those, because that those sequences were just so brilliantly well done. Absolute highlight of, of Chris Nolan's film, um, and something I do find myself going back and watching from time and time, time and time again. Because you know, Hans Zimmer's score is brilliant, the sound design is brilliant, uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema's um, cinematography is fantastic. The editing has an energy and an urgency, uh, which keeps the geography of the scene and everything in perspective. Um, and what Top Gun Maverick does is take those ideas and take that sort of um, technical filmmaking to another level altogether. You know, it it is <laughs> it is just so impressive in that regard. I really can't can't you know speak more highly of it. To be honest, um, you know, even little things like you know when you watch Formula One and they do the cockpit or the, the point of view, you know, the the T cam, and you find yourself sort of tilting your head around the corners, you kind of find yourself along with the driver sitting on the couch kind of tilting your way around. I found myself doing that watching this, which was sort of, you know, quite funny. Um, but but a testament to just how sucked into the narrative that you are. Um, and even little things like I, I, I love the canyon run from Independence Day, the first one, where uh, Will Smith's Stephen Hiller goes into the canyon, he takes the alien craft in with him and they, they have a little cat and mouse um, it was one of the trailers. It's just so brilliantly done. A really little sequence, and I kind of again wonder: was that any kind of inspiration at all um, for what we see in this film? Because uh, it's a great inspiration to take. It was a great sequence, really well done, and, and to see it again dialed up in something like this, twenty-five years after the fact, um, is great. Great stuff to watch. Um, another strength in terms of the technical elements is the film's pacing. I found it cycled through the gears really perfectly. You know, it ratcheted up the pace when they needed to. It slowed down and it gave the characters and the plot um, and the audience a bit of a breather when it needed to before taking all those developments and taking all those character beats and adding them to the climax, you know, in terms of emotional stakes. So come the final, 
everyone has something to tackle. The actual stakes of the mission are very, very clear. The audience understands it is very difficult. The margin for error is nearly non-existent. But it gives each of the audience, uh, each of the characters, I should say, a calling to answer or something to overcome, whether that's doubt or nerves or their own ego. And it's so brilliantly run in that sense that every character, their reaction or their emotional state heading into that final mission is completely justified and completely rational, which is a great credit to the filmmakers and the actors and all the like. Uh, Another um, chicken salad were the callbacks. So the film starts with Faltermeyer's classic theme into Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. And it's a little bit on the nose, um, but I'll allow it because how else do you start the movie, you know? The look and the feel and the cinematography is all very similar. The, the sounds and the like are all very similar. And in that way, it's quite a cool kind of you know, parable to something like the last arc, the Mandalore arc of the Clone Wars, which started with the classic Lucasfilm green font title card, which more than anything else promises you a sensation or promises you, you know, elicits in you emotions that you can trace back to the original, to that time frame, to an era gone by, but it, it ties you or tethers you in just the right way to where you kind of need to be to sort of start the film with a smile on your face. I remember seeing the Lucasfilm card come up um, the way it did in those Clone Wars episodes and just and just loving it. Wasn't expecting it. It was such a small detail, but it immediately grounded the, the episodes or immediately put the audience in a frame of mind um, that took them back to that early 80s, took them back to watching Jedi on a VHS. And when you know Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer production comes up and the Faltermeyer score rises and then it obviously kicks into uh, Loggins, the audience have a smile on their face. They're exactly where they need to be. Like I said, it's a bit obvious, maybe. Oh, yeah, look, it's just repurposing what we've seen before. But it immediately puts the audience in the palm of their hand and immediately gets the audience on side. So very, very well done. Really, really like that. Um, and most of the other callbacks are handled really tastefully. You know, um, making these legacy sequels is a bit of a tightrope at times and handling tips of the hat, nods of the head, um, you know, winks at the camera you know, to do it in a meaningful way and so not to be frivolous can be difficult, but I think the film really does accomplish them um, pretty seamlessly. I think it earns a lot of those callbacks and I think it handles them really tactfully. Um, there's, a, there's a cool kind of recurring motif where Maverick finds himself saying to himself a lot of the time or on a few occasions as a bit of a pep talk or you know, generally just when he's on his own, he'll say the line, talk to me, goose. That's just a little line from the first movie, um, but to tie him back to that, to tie him back to his friend, to tie him back to a guy that helped him um, is a cool emotional beat, and then the way it pays off later on when he's in combat with Rooster, and Rooster's with him, he says, talk to me, Rooster, and it's a nice, as I said, tying of the bow on top of the arc that is their relationship getting to that point in time which is really, really cool. Um, There's some other fun kind of... uh, Some of the characters are almost avatars or amalgams of those from the original. John Hamm plays a guy who went through the Top Gun Academy a couple of years after Iceman and Maverick, um, and he's sort of a bit of a mesh-up of like a Viper-type elder statesman now, more experienced aviator who's obviously working at Top Gun. 
Ed Harris has a brief role uh, as an admiral. He's almost kind of like a James Tolkien, who who most people uh, I think he played uh, Stinger in um, in Top Gun at the very start. He was the had the classic line, "You'll be flying a cargo plane full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong." Um, he of course played Principal Strickland in Back to the Future, and for anyone who's a Masters of the Universe fan, he played uh, Lubick. Absolutely brilliant role. Nobody takes pot shots at Lubick. Um, he was fantastic in that. But they're kind of similar sort of characters, again, familiar, maybe speaking to the fact that those characters always exist in these environments, but there is a, a sense of familiarity, which is cool. And then more than that, again, the new crew have a really fun dynamic. You know, it's very similar to that of the first, a lot of egos, a lot of, you know, um, these are all the best of the best, and then when they come together, establishing a pecking order can be difficult, um, but they have the wise-cracking banter with one another, um, in that way, it's a little bit similar to something like the Colonial uh, Marines in uh, Aliens, but I thought their dynamic was really cool together, and the way that it evolved over the course of the movie was great, really well handled. Um, you sort of had check boss, well, you know, one of everything kind of thing, uh, but the way they all came together was great. Um, I mentioned the sound mix off the top. That's an absolute chicken salad. Don't sleep on how difficult it is to produce a sound mix that is that good. Um rattles the theatre, it pins you to the base of your seat. At times it really shakes you as it puts you in the cockpit or puts you in the thick of the action with our characters. It is phenomenally well done um, and, and such a strong aspect or element of these movies. Um, the movies would be half as good if it was half as good. So that, that's an absolute highlight. I hope it's recognised as time goes on because it is genuinely brilliant um, you know, achievement in sound mixing and sound design. That's uh, so, so well done. In terms of chicken sh- uh, shits, to be honest with you, there aren't really that many. Um, I think the film, p- potentially some people may criticise it for being a touch formulaic, but that all leads to it being enjoyable. You know, there's no point, you know, Ryan Johnson famously coined the phrase subverting expectations, the idea that um, The Last Jedi and some of the twists and turns aren't what you expect. So what we're going to do is we're going to place we're going to we're going to surprise you with the potential expense of disappointing you. We would rather have you not know what was coming than perhaps have it be telegraphed and have you enjoy it. We're prepared to roll that dice. That's dumb. It's dumb, dumb, dumb filmmaking because there's no point surprising the audience if the audience doesn't like the surprise. Surprising us for surprise's sake, just so you can go ah you didn't see that coming. Dumb. Because if you roll the dice and it's shit. People just leave frustrated, annoyed, disappointed, with a bad taste in their mouth. There's nothing wrong with executing some of those more formulaic beats really, really well, doing it um, in an exciting way, You know, backing yourself to maintain a sense of tension, um, backing yourself to create urgency and excitement in the edit, and this does it brilliantly. Really, really, really well, well done. Um, so like I said, even though you, you might sort of see a few of these moments coming, well, it's great when they do come. A couple of moments in particular, it's great. It's when they when they do happen, it's fantastic. Because it's a crowd-pleasing, enjoyable movie. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to have you leave the cinema on a high, with a smile on your face, having loved what you've just seen. There's nothing wrong with that. Particularly, it's really well executed. Um, so in, in conclusion, um, you know, Top Gun Maverick is... A belated sequel, but it is absolutely worth the wait. It's a throwback to a time when heroes were human, when they were flawed, uh, when they were heroic. 
Now, it is exhilarating, it is emotional, um, and it is expert filmmaking on a grand scale, expert blockbuster filmmaking on a grand scale, um, you know, grounded by compelling characters, clear stakes, um, and objectives. It is as good an experience as I can remember having in the cinema in a very, very, very long time. Um, I really could not have enjoyed it any more than I have, and I can't wait to go and see it again in the next couple of days because it is absolutely worth um, the cost of admission, your time. Uh, I really can't recommend going to see it any more than I already have if you haven't got that impression already. Obviously, I haven't been paying attention, but um, if you do go and see it, if you have gone and seen it, um, if you're looking forward to going and seeing it, please do get in touch with me and tell me your thoughts because I'd be uh, really interested to hear them to kind of have some reinforcement that uh, I'm not alone in perhaps being overly effusive in my praise of the movie. Um, I really, really do think it's that good. Um, we'll probably do another one, I think, as I said, probably going to do some Obi-Wan episodes over the next couple of weeks. Very much looking forward to that. But uh, in the meantime, I certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode about Top Gun Maverick and I look forward to talking to you again uh, soon. <laughs>